You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Why We Are Losing Our Freedom of Speech by Peter Schwartz. In 1977, a highly controversial event took place. The ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, went to court to defend a neo-Nazi group. The ACLU argued that the Nazis, despite their despicable ideology, had a right to stage a political demonstration in the town of Skokie, Illinois. The town was home to many Jews, including survivors of Hitler's Holocaust, and officials there had tried to prohibit the demonstration. But the ACLU understood the importance of the principle at stake. Amid much opposition, it vigorously upheld the Nazis' right to march, including their right to display the swastika on the grounds of freedom of speech, and it won the case. For many years, the ACLU, despite its numerous flaws, was a symbol of the absolutism of free speech. The organization insisted that this freedom applied to all viewpoints, regardless of how odious they might be. Today, however, the ACLU has retreated from that position. In keeping with the trend of our times, it no longer regards freedom of speech as an unequivocal right. One of its lawyers, someone who had argued the Skokie case in 1977, observed recently, referring to the ACLU and to the left in general, quote, liberals are leaving the First Amendment behind. According to a New York Times article, the ACLU, quote, finds itself now riven with internal tensions over whether it has stepped away from a founding principle, unwavering devotion to the First Amendment. Its national and state staff debate, often hotly, whether defense of free speech conflicts with advocacy for a growing number of progressive causes. Freedom of speech contends with ever more forceful progressive arguments that hate speech is a form of psychological and even physical violence." Close quote. Now, it was not so long ago that freedom of expression was widely cherished it was seen as a crucial right in a free society, a right without which a free society could not be sustained. While there was much dispute over what should and should not be controlled by government, there was widespread agreement that the expression of ideas must remain unregulated. Most people understood the fundamental and obvious distinction between words and actions between confronting someone with your opinions and confronting him physically. The transformation in the ACLU is just one of the signs that this distinction is disappearing. For example, a Nobel Prize winner now declares, quote, oppressive speech does more than represent violence, it is violence. To refer to a transgender person by the wrong pronoun is, according to a speaker at the University of Maryland, quote, an act of violence. Across university campuses, students are demanding so-called safe spaces and trigger warnings to shield them from ideas which they regard 
as threats. When professors at a college met to propose a policy of allowing unrestricted speech on campus, a number of students broke into the meeting. They demanded that speech on campus be regulated. They screamed, free speech harms, and they insisted that freedom of speech was merely a tool of white male privilege. Many schools have been issuing prohibitions against so-called microaggressions, which are statements that upset members of certain groups and that are deemed equivalent to acts of force. In this category, according to the uh, University of California, are such assertions as, America is the land of opportunity, or I believe the most qualified person should get the job, or affirmative action is racist. If you utter such statements, you are treated as though you are committing an act of aggression. Consequently, campus speakers who present viewpoints that students oppose are frequently prevented, are physically prevented, from speaking. Such actions often go unpunished by the school's administration because the perpetrators are regarded sympathetically as victims. Victims of what? Of verbal coercion, of microaggression. This belief that the expression of ideas is to be considered an act of force has found its way into codes of law. In Canada, for instance, it is illegal to make any statement that is, quote, likely to expose a person or group of persons to hatred or contempt based on race, color, ancestry, place of origin, or religion. In fact, some years ago, Canadian customs agents actually confiscated pamphlets from the Ayn Rand Institute, albeit only temporarily, the pamphlets were reprints of an op-ed titled In Moral Defense of Israel and were judged to be hate propaganda aimed at Palestinians. In England, expressions of, quote, religious hatred are banned. In Sweden, it is forbidden by law to speak against homosexuality. This prohibition of so-called hate speech has, fortunately, not yet infected America's legal code, but it seems to be coming. Last year, for example, the Department of Homeland Security was allocated half a million dollars for a research grant to create means of detecting microaggressions on social media. This alarming trend has been developing gradually over time. There was, however, one watershed event that drastically accelerated the trend. It occurred in 1989 following the publication of a novel, The Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie. The book mocked Islam and Muhammad, which the theocratic state of Iran declared was an intolerable blasphemy. So it issued a death warrant against Rushdie with a multi-million dollar bounty for his assassination. This sparked violence around the world. The book was banned in over a dozen countries with large Muslim populations. In several Western nations, Muslim communities held public rallies, burning 
copies of the book. Riots broke out. People were killed. Rushdie was forced to live under constant police protection. One of the foreign translators of the book was murdered and several others seriously injured. Here in the US, threats of violence were made against Rushdie's publishers and bookstores were firebombed with many booksellers removing the title from their shelves. Yet the response by the American government was appallingly bland. Instead of declaring that Iran was using force against us and must be retaliated against, our government reacted with a feeble reprimand. President Bush even called for goodwill between the US and Iran. Rather than condemning Iran's theocratic rule, Bush took great pains to point out what a wonderful, peaceful religion Islam is, implying that he understood the Koran far better than the Ayatollahs of Iran did. Conservative religionists at the time conveyed outrage against Rushdie for having the temerity to attack the beliefs of an established religion. They expressed sympathy toward the millions of Muslims whose sensibilities, they said, were offended by Rushdie's disrespectful sacrilege. An editorial in Publishers Weekly, the industry's leading journal, recommended appeasement. It urged Rushdie's publisher to abandon plans for the paperback edition. Issuing the paperback, it maintained, will, quote, surely be seen as a slap in the face against the Muslims whose feelings have certainly been hurt by the book. Close quote. While the violence committed by Iran was not being explicitly endorsed by these voices, the implicit message was, you have a right not to be offended. You have a right not to have others question your beliefs. The message was that upsetting the views of certain groups is unacceptable and that a violent response by such groups, while perhaps not to be applauded, is at least understandable. One result of all this was, and continues to be, an unwillingness by any major publisher or artistic group to produce serious criticisms of Islam. But the impact has extended well beyond religion to virtually any belief held by some collective. Expressing a viewpoint that others find objectionable is now tantamount to committing an act of physical aggression against them. How has this happened? How did people lose the obvious distinction between thoughts and actions? Every child used to know the proverb that sticks and stones will break my bones, but words can never harm me. Yes, it's true that even in the past, freedom of speech was not completely inviolate. For example, there were always laws against obscenity, but those were the exceptions. When it came to typical communication of ideas, the right to do so was largely unquestioned. How have we now reached the stage where mere words are regarded as equivalent to physical force? How have we reached the stage where the utterance of a viewpoint that another person finds offensive, 
so-called hate speech, can become a violation of his rights. To answer that question, let's start by looking at the origin of the concept of force and at the philosophic context it presumes. Uh, some of you may remember a talk I delivered some years ago titled Free Minds and Free Markets, in which I addressed this issue. Let me summarize part of that discussion. We observe people being punched, being shoved, being clubbed, being shot. We see a similarity among such actions. We integrate them and we distinguish them from what? From voluntary interactions between people. We grasp the concept force by recognizing that in human interactions there is an essential distinction between the chosen and the unchosen, between interactions that are willingly engaged in and interactions that are not. Now, it happens that we use the word force in reference also to acts of nature. For example, we speak of the force of gravity or the force of a hurricane, but that has a very different meaning. It's the same word, but a different concept. Here, in a human context, the concept force names the phenomenon of action taken against a person contrary to his choice. We realize that having a tooth punched out by some bully is an instance of force, while having a tooth pulled out by a dentist is not, even though in terms of physics there may be similar energy expended in both cases. We understand that having one's money taken by a mugger is very different from having one's money taken by a grocer in payment for food, and we classify only the mugging as an act of force. The crucial element is consent. You are the victim of force only when you do not consent to the action taken against you. We form the concept of force to differentiate it from voluntary interaction, and so it applies only when that alternative is possible. When it comes to acts of nature, falling rain may make you cold and miserable, a gust of wind may knock you over and cause you injury, but in neither case is force being used against you. Rain does not choose whether to fall on you. The wind does not choose whether to blow on you. It is not force. Nor conversely are you wielding force against a tree when you grab an apple off its branch or against a river when you build a dam to stop its flow of water. The concept of force does not pertain to entities that lack free will. The concept of force, in other words, applies exclusively to actions taken by a volitional being against another volitional being who does not consent to it. However, this distinction between the chosen and the unchosen is still not enough for us to establish the concept. Not everything in the category of the unchosen qualifies as force. After all, we may not choose to have someone criticize our clothing or criticize our political views, but such criticism does not represent force. So there's another essential difference we must incorporate, namely the difference between the physical 
and the non-physical. We realize that an argument must be distinguished from a beating. Words must be distinguished from fists. Why? Because we understand that as volitional beings, we can choose to disregard someone else's words, but we cannot disregard his fists. We thus grasp the phenomenon of being physically forced to do, uh, to do something as against being persuaded to do something. We identify the concept force to denote a physical action to which one person subjects another person against his will. To repeat, the concept arises only when there's a distinction between the chosen and the unchosen and between the physical and the non-physical. Neither of these distinctions exists in the non-human realm. In that realm, nothing is chosen and everything is purely physical. There is nothing non-physical in nature. There, all actions are automatic, deterministic responses to various stimuli. In that domain, the concept force that we have formed has no meaning. And this is true, not just of the inanimate world, but of animals as well. The concept force does not apply to them. All their actions, including their acts of consciousness, are physically determined. If you want a hamster in a maze to follow a certain course, you can administer a mild electric shock whenever it takes the wrong turn, or you can place some cheese along the correct path. These two methods, the carrot versus the stick, are essentially the same in the animal world. Either way, the hamster must, must take a particular action. It is programmed to respond in a predetermined manner, either to the unpleasant sensation of the shock or to the pleasant sensation of the cheese. By contrast, giving a human being an unexpected electric jolt to stop him from walking in a certain direction is very different from offering him a cheeseburger as an inducement to change his path. The jolt constitutes force while the prospect of the food, because it allows the person to choose freely, constitutes persuasion. Now my point is not that animals have no rights and so you're entitled to use force against them. The point is that you are not using force against them. There are many actions you can take toward an animal. You may regard it as a value or non-value. You may act to benefit it or harm it. You may treat it humanely or subject it to cruel, arbitrary treatment, which by the way would be morally wrong. But properly speaking, whatever you do to animals, you are not using force. Take your pet dog as another example. If you want him to stop walking, Yanking on his leash is not essentially different from simply uttering the words, Fido, stay. The leash does not represent force any more than your words represent persuasion. Actually, they are not even words, just physical sounds to which your dog is automatically trained to react. The concept of force pertains only to the volitional. It pertains only to physical actions taken by a volitional being to neutralize the choice of another volitional being. So now, we understand the concept of force and where it applies. But before we can return to our original question 
about the attacks on free speech, we have to examine the effects of, of force. The effect force has on its victim. The body's mechanical functions, from the circulation of blood to the digestion of food, are automatic. The same holds for sensory perception, a level of awareness that man has in common with animals. He automatically sees what moves into his line of vision and hears what is shouted into his ear. His senses do not operate by choice. His rational mind, however, does. The use of reason does not happen mechanically. It requires a volitional effort. At the conceptual level, man must choose to be aware. He must choose whether or not to think. A bird, upon awakening, does not ponder, shall I hunt for worms this morning? Or should I tidy up the nest? Or just take the day off? Animals are innately programmed to take certain courses of action under certain conditions. Man is not. He must continually choose among the alternatives he faces. Force prevents the victim from freely making that choice. Since every act of choice is an act of the rational faculty, and since every act of the rational faculty involves an act of choice, when force nullifies choice, it nullifies thought. It nullifies the functioning of a conceptual consciousness. Let's see exactly how this occurs. If you know something to be true or false, a gun cannot make you think otherwise. It can't make you think two plus two equals five. It can't force you to know what you know is not so. If you're a physicist and a gunman orders you to design a perpetual motion machine and you are convinced there can be no such thing, you cannot proceed. The gunman cannot make your mind believe something is possible when you know it is impossible. And trying to comply with this command will just leave your mind paralyzed. That's fairly obvious, I think. But what about force aimed strictly at action? Let's take a stereotypical example. You're an expert in explosives engineering, and a terrorist kidnaps your children, your wife and your children, and orders you to build a bomb for him. He said, or he'll kill, he'll kill your family if you don't. You comply and build a bomb. Is your mind functioning? You think about acquiring the necessary materials, putting them together in the right way, making it all work, and you complete the task. Aren't you engaged in thinking despite the force? No. The question that needs to be asked is, what is the force being directed against? What is, the, what is it that you do not want to do willingly that you are being made to do unwillingly? Well, it's, it's to build a weapon for the terrorist. You wouldn't voluntarily do it because you know it's against your self-interest to assist a terrorist or any criminal. It's his gun that is now forcing you to act against that knowledge against your knowledge of what is good or bad for you. Yes, you can think about how to assemble the bomb, how to attach wire A to wire B, etc. 
but the force is not being directed against that thinking. The terrorist is not forcing you to act, to act against your knowledge of how to construct the bomb any more than he's forcing you to act against your knowledge that uranium has a high atomic density or your knowledge that you have to put your pants on one leg at a time. What he is forcing you to act against is your judgment that helping a terrorist is bad for you. At the time this event happens, you know that you would not do it voluntarily. You would not help arm a terrorist voluntarily. You know that if he is empowered, it's your own values, your own life that will be put at risk. You've thought about it and you've concluded that this is definitely not something you should do. Along comes the gunman and tells you, yes, you should. He forces you to nullify your thinking and instead to obey his orders. His gun makes your knowledge inoperative. Your thinking no longer functions. With respect to this issue, your mind has been shut down. When you unwillingly help that terrorist build the bomb, you are not thinking. You are mindlessly obeying. And this negation of thought extends further. You know that sustaining your life requires adherence to certain principles. You know, for instance, that it requires you to follow your independent judgment. You know that it requires justice. You know that it requires you to encourage and reward the rational and to discourage and punish the irrational. You know that it requires the honest exchange of value for value in dealings between people. You know that it requires the production of values rather than the sacrifice of values. All that thinking and much, much more is being nullified here. When the terrorist makes you build that bomb, you are being forced to ignore your independent judgment and instead to do whatever you are told. You are being forced to engage in an injustice. You are forced to collaborate with a killer. You are forced to assist in your captor's irrationality. You are forced to surrender your values. You are forced to produce a bomb in return for nothing that you didn't already possess. You are forced to suppress your thoughts about what is the right way for you to live. When you face the two alternatives, you know, either build a bomb or refuse and have your family killed, it's important to understand that you are not really choosing one course of action over the other. The two alternatives themselves are being forced upon you by the gunman. You're not able to make a free choice here. It's not that you're choosing between losing your loved one or helping the terrorist and you make the independent judgment that the latter is in your self-interest, no. It's that you tell yourself, I know it's harmful for me to help a terrorist, but the gunman says, do it anyway. That is the function of a gun. It's not like contemplating buying a Chevrolet and then being given a more beneficial offer by a Toyota dealer. There you are exercising free choice and facing the two possibilities and then in choosing one over the other. A choice you make because you decide you'll be better off because of it. Here, however, building the bomb rather than having your family killed is not a free choice. 
It's a choice imposed upon you by force. And you're not better off because of it. You have gained no value. You're simply avoiding the destruction of values you already possess. Imagine that after the bomb was built, the terrorists were to forcibly grab your hand, you know, and physically press it on the detonator switch to set off the bomb. Obviously, you won't say you, you chose to do that. You did not choose to do that. You did not choose to explode the bomb. Well, there's no difference. It's no different from you're deciding to build the bomb in response to the threat against you and your family. You did not choose to do it. You did not follow your judgment. You were forced to suspend your judgment. Morality, which means the, your chosen code of values that guide your life, that ends where a gun begins. Ayn Rand described the act of force as, quote, interposing the threat of physical destruction between a man and his perception of reality. Here, when you become the victim of force, your perception of reality is annulled. Reality tells you that it's bad for you to help the terrorist. The gun makes that perception inoperative. It's as if that knowledge, that part of reality, does not exist. An analogy here will be helpful. The way a mind is affected by an act of force is in one respect the same way it is affected by an act of evasion. Consider someone who voluntarily helps this terrorist because he's offered lots of money to build a bomb. The person knows that it's wrong for him to go along with it, but he evades that knowledge. All he focuses on is his desire for the money. He compartmentalizes. He simply shuts out the part of reality that tells him his action is evil and self-destructive. In our case, too, you, as the victim of force, have some part of reality off limits to your thinking. You are the victim of coerced compartmentalization. When you say to yourself, in effect, I know I shouldn't help this terrorist, but I will not accept that knowledge, whether that non-acceptance is by choice or by force, it's the negation of cognition. Obviously, you're not to blame when you act under force, but the effect is the same. Your mind is shut off to that part of reality which tells you that this is not what the life of a human being calls for. Let's push this one final step further. Granted, your thinking is being rendered inoperative here. Nonetheless, it might be asked, can't you still think in the privacy of your own mind? Even as you build the bomb, can't you be thinking about how you should not be doing this? Can't you be telling yourself that this is not how life should be lived? You may not be able to act on that knowledge, but isn't that still thinking? Again, no. Thinking is not an end in itself, only the act of living is. The only purpose of thought is to guide action. The most abstract theoretical thinking, if it is valid, if it's to be considered cognition, must have some potential application in reality. It must have some practical relevance. A thought that is totally divorced from action, totally divorced from reality, is not what thinking means.
It may be a mental activity, but it is not a cognitive activity. It is no different from fantasizing. It would be like asking yourself, if angels exist, and if they have nimble feet, and if they have a sense of rhythm, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? That is not thinking. It's idle daydream. If it is disconnected from reality, if it is irrelevant to life, it is not cognition. Now, the victim of force can perhaps project a different scenario. He can think of what he should do when his life returns to normal, if and when the threat of force is removed, but to the extent and for the duration that he is subjected to force, his thinking is negated. So we've covered two basic points so far. One, force applies only to volitional beings. Two, its primary effect is to stop the functioning of a man's conceptual, i.e. volitional, mind. Now we can return to the original question of why many people have come to regard words as force. What does a rational person do when he encounters some new idea? Since he knows that he is free to accept or reject it, he will judge it. Assuming it has some bearing on his life, he will examine it objectively. He will discover whether it is true or not. Is it logical? What are the arguments for it or against it? Does it integrate with the rest of his knowledge, etc.? Even if the idea is something he may initially disagree with, he is open to persuasion. He exercises his free will by being ready to follow wherever the evidence leads. But today's intellectuals predominantly claim that we have no free will. Concept of the, excuse me, the content of our minds is not the product of our autonomous choices. Instead, they say, whatever ideas we hold are determined by forces outside our control. We are simply passive reactors. One common version of this view is stated by a professor at Duke University. Quote, nothing that passes through the human mind doesn't have its origin in sexual, economic, and racial differentia. A similar version is presented by a feminist theorist who rejects the whole process of objective scientific inquiry because it is, quote, a male way of knowing. Another related version is offered by a mathematics educator who complains that only the math of the, of the Western world is being taught in our schools. Quote, Eurocentric math has become the de facto way of understanding the world of math. Instead, mathematics educators should adopt ethnomathematics into their lesson. Yes, ethnomathematics, which is exactly what you think it might be. They should adopt ethnomathematics into their lessons plans because mathematics should reflect mathematical understandings and practices from the whole world, not just part of it. In other words, an individual's ideas are not the result of his own thinking, of his own free choices. Rather, they are the deterministic products of his social environment, specifically some, of some collective 
to which he happens to belong. This is what people are taught today. They are told that volition is a myth. And if volition is a myth, then objectivity is a myth. Objectivity, the commitment to a method of, a logical method for arriving at the truth is meaningless on this view. A method we choose to follow for the purpose of distinguishing between truth and error is meaningless if we are not in control of our own minds. For centuries, the dominant trend in philosophy has been an attack on reason, particularly on objectivity. A currently influential school of thought called postmodernism has made this assault unusually explicit. Is there an objective reality which exists independently of man's consciousness? Quote, all the following quotes are from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Quote, postmodernists dismiss this idea, the idea of an independent reality, dismiss this idea as a kind of naive realism. Such reality as there is, according to postmodernists, is a conceptual construct, an artifact of language. Close quote. Can statements be objectively true or false? Quote, the postmodern denial of this viewpoint is sometimes expressed by saying there is no such thing as truth. Close quote. Is reason, is logic universally valid? Quote, for postmodernists, reason and logic too are merely conceptual constructs. Close quote. Are science and technology instruments of human progress? Quote, some postmodernists go so far as to say that science and technology and even reason and logic are inherently destructive and oppressive. Close quote. This philosophy is pervasive among intellectuals today. And its political social manifestation is multiculturalism. Multiculturalism is the widely accepted view that all cultures are equally valid. Ultimately, that all ideas and all values are equally valid. They're all valid according to the multiculturalists because there is no objective standard by which you can validate anything. All our convictions are shaped by outside forces not open to our choice. Race, gender, ancestry, geographical location. There are many different ways of thinking, we are told, as determined by the group to which we belong. Consequently, the purveyors of multiculturalism create such intellectual categories as the female theory of law or the white interpretation of history. So there's a black way of thinking, a white way, a female way, a gay way, etc., etc. All the crucial advances of Western civilization, reason, science, individualism, capitalism, are all dismissed as the biased output of white European males concocted by the powerful in order to oppress the powerless. Is science better than superstition? Is freedom better than dictatorship? Is modern medicine better than primitive witch doctoring? There are no objective standards, we are told. Every idea is simply the unchosen product of one's class. As just one illustration of how entrenched this view has become, consider the fact that scholarly articles 
now include a positionality statement by the author. What in the world is a, position, a positionality statement, you ask? Here's the definition from dictionary.com, quote, positionality is the social and political context that creates your identity in terms of race, class, gender, sexuality, and ability status. Personality also, excuse me, positionality also describes how your identity influences and potentially biases your understanding of and outlook on the world. And from a website that offers helpful advice on various topics, here is a, an example, a serious example of what an author's positionality statement should contain. Quote, I am a 45-year-old white male living in the United States. I hold a PhD in anthropology and have been working in the field for the past 20 years. I recognize my position as a privileged white male and my access to resources which are not available to everyone. In order to bring a more comprehensive view to my research, I strive to be humble and mindful of my privilege and seek to actively listen to those with a different lived experience." Close quote. Sadly, this is how many papers, including scientific papers, are now evaluated. Not by looking objectively at the evidence and the arguments presented in support of some conclusion, but by parsing the multicultural identity of the author, whose views are presumed to be the product of membership in some collective. So multiculturalism, like all varieties of collectivism, endorses a form of determinism. But it's a militant determinism. It's a militant tribalism. It doesn't say, well, unfortunately, you can't avoid having your beliefs implanted in you by your class. That's too bad. Rather, it says, your class and its beliefs, its so-called culture, constitute your essential identity. And you should defend it aggressively. You should embrace it. You should take pride in it. Take pride in how your tribe has supposedly shaped you. Take pride in your, in your tribal characteristics. Take pride in what you have no choice over. Multiculturalism thus promotes black pride, gay pride, Puerto Rican pride, Native American pride, even deaf pride. What's deaf pride? It's not the pride a deaf person should properly take in being able to overcome his disability and to live successfully in spite of it. No. It's the pride he should take in clinging to his disability as his cultural birthright. It's the pride he takes in refusing to accept a cure even when one is available to him. If you've read Return of the Primitive, you may recall that in my article on multiculturalism, I discussed the controversy over a medical procedure called a cochlear implant. This is a procedure by which some deaf children can have their hearing restored. There is strong opposition to it among the deaf. The procedure is seen by them as a denial of the deaf child's cultural identity. 
According to an article in The Atlantic magazine, quote, many deaf people now proclaim that they are a subculture like any other minority and are no more in need of a cure for their condition than are Haitians or Hispanics. The article's title is Deafness as Culture. Now, since the content of your consciousness is, is determined by the tribe, the so-called culture, to which you belong, if you happen to belong to the tribe of hearing people, deafness is undesirable to you. If you belong to the tribe of the deaf, deafness is to be welcomed. It is to be appreciated. It is to be venerated. Nothing is objectively good or bad, remember, but your tribal identity can be, cannot be questioned or denied. As a result of this monstrous creed, many deaf children are consigned by their parents to the tragedy of a lifetime of deafness, of unnecessary deafness. Now those who are influenced by this philosophy, especially today's college students, will not attempt to judge the ideas they encounter. They will not try to learn whether a given idea is true or not, there are no objective truths. There are only the deterministic beliefs of one's, of one's class. Ideas are not transmitted by reason and logic, they are simply injected into one's passive brain. A multiculturalist cannot declare, I believe this because I can prove it. All he can say is, I believe it because my tribe feels strongly about it. He cannot point to facts of reality in support of his view. Every tribe has its own reality. If he hears an idea with which he disagrees, therefore, he will summarily reject it. He will not be open to discussion or persuasion. To a mind reduced in effect to the equivalent of an animal's automatic consciousness, no persuasion is possible. But further, not only is persuasion not possible, but as with an animal, no distinction exists between force and persuasion, between fists and words. After all, there is no self-generated thinking to be negated by force, and there is no self-generated thinking by which to engage in persuasion. For that hamster in the maze, there is no difference between the electric shock and the piece of cheese. If man too is just a deterministic creature, there is no difference between having an argument directed at one's mind or having a gun pointed at one's head. It's all the same. The recipient experiences them both as simply a means of making him change his behavior. Those who hold this premise about volition and objectivity, what action will they take when confronted with views they find unacceptable? When they hear the idea say that affirmative action is wrong, or that men who transgender to women should not compete athletically against biological women, or that deafness is a disability, that should be a disability that should be cured. 
If they hear such ideas, either they will try to escape to some safe space, or they will try to attack and silence the speaker. Why? Because they feel threatened, exactly as if they were facing a loaded weapon. Words to them are equivalent to fists. Words are something to be feared. Words are attacks upon their tribal identity. Words must be suppressed. And if words are to be considered the equivalent of fists, then fists become the equivalent of words. When encountering words with which they disagree, they feel justified in responding with fists, with actual physical force. Thus, when a campus newspaper prints material that certain students regard as offensive, they feel entitled to steal and destroy copies of the paper before it can be read. In support of such action, an editorial in a competing college paper argues that, quote, the individuals who burned copies of the newspaper were demonstrating the same freedom of expression that allowed the newspaper to print its views, close quote. When a campus speaker is invited to express controversial ideas, students feel entitled to physically stop him from speaking. In support of such action, a universe, one university administrator argues that this violence, violent interference, quote, should be understood as an attempt to ensure conditions of free speech for a greater group of people, close quote. Which group of people? The people who feel that their freedom to express themselves consists of the right to use force. This is the same rationale used by the violent crowd that stormed the Washington DC Capitol on January 6th of 2021. They were just expressing their view about the election results. It's the same rationale used by the violent crowds that looted and burned property during demonstrations by Black Lives Matter. They were just expressing their views about racism. It's the rationale which rests on the belief that words and fists are indistinguishable. And if that becomes widely accepted, it will be the death knell for freedom of speech. When the Rushdie affair was unfolding, some people argued that freedom of speech represents a Eurocentric perspective one that we should not demand or expect of other cultures. In response to this, the New York Times issued the following impressive, surprisingly impressive editorial. Quote, some Americans come close to suggesting that free speech is a complicated Western concept, inapplicable to other societies. This is bad logic and worse policy. By this logic, should one remain mute if non-Western societies condone slavery, torture, infanticide, and the immolation of widows? To excuse book burning, whether in England or India, is to throw reason itself on the pyre, 
That's Pyre, P-Y-R-E, close quote. I doubt that this represents today's viewpoint of the New York Times editorial board, but it certainly remains true. To rescue freedom of speech, it is indeed the principle of reason that we have to rescue. Reason and its source, the free mind. This growing attack on volition will certainly affect all our freedoms. But our freedom of speech is what we should be particularly concerned about. Free speech is our last protection against political tyranny. No matter how severely our lives might be regulated in other areas, as long as we are free to communicate ideas, there is always hope for the future. There is always hope for a future that is open to better, radically different ideas. That future will be secured when the meaning of the free mind is understood. That future will be secured when people realize that each individual does ultimately control the content of his consciousness. That he is free to judge any idea he comes across. That he is able to decide independently whether any idea is true or false. That future will be secured when people realize that there is only one thing to fear about an idea, the unwillingness to think about it. It's our job, the job of the defenders of the free mind, to help teach this to the world. Thank you. Okay, we'll take questions now. Is, uh, there's some uh, journalists, um, Matt Tobai and uh, Michael Schellenberger and the, the Free Press that are, uh, they have, they're fighting what they call the censorship industrial complex, which is the, um, apparently a union between uh, government, uh, big business and uh, and uh, large institutions like academics. Do you think, uh, first of all, do you think that they are also, uh, the, the reason this, uh, this uh, censorship industrial complex, that they are also enthralled to this uh, multiculturalism and, and this is the driving force for the censorship? Like they're trying to uh, censure uh, Facebook and, and Twitter, they were, they were doing this, that, that this is the, the multiculturalism is... is uh, no, I, I think that's a different aspect of the, uh, the censorship mentality. See, I'm discussing the mentality that because it rejects volition, believes it's perfectly uh, justifiable to censor ideas because there's no difference between, <clears throat> excuse me, there's no difference between words and fists. Censoring an idea is no different from banning somebody from putting a gun to your head. There are other enemies of free speech. The, the, and that they are a growing threat. There's a, a threat to free speech from the idea of paternalism, which is, I think, what, partly what this contingent comes from. They think we have to censor Facebook and Twitter because there's all this, quote, misinformation going on. 
We can't rely on people to judge for themselves what's true or false. We have to have the government step in and tell them. And that is a very dangerous development. That definitely is going to lead to censorship as well. So there are several branches within this censorship movement, but I think the most dangerous one, uh, the most far-reaching one, is the one that directly uh, comes from the denial of, of, of volition and preaches the whole multiculturalist dogma that everyone's ideas come from their class and therefore there's no difference. There's no such thing as persuasion, so there's no difference between words and force. Thank you. Hello. So I've experienced in business culture a trend where the act of persuading others is now frowned upon. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, for example, I've had people tell me that they felt that the act of trying to change their mind was aggressive. Yeah. Uh, and I've been explicitly told by senior leaders in business that no one should try to persuade another person. This has led to the balkanization of departments and teams within companies with this culture, with multiple teams often doing the same job since no one can object or cons and consolidate action around a singular truth and attempting to do so would be considered offensive. Yeah. How does one push back, how, how do I push back on these ideas without persuasion. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> like, um, and, and, and I mean, are, are these, are those that hold these ideas and these premises just too far gone by default? What, what can I do? Well, first of all, you're, 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 you're making my case. I didn't realize it had infected business to that extent. You're asking the following question. <laughs> How can I persuade people they're wrong without persuading them? Um, you can hold a gun to their heads, but that won't work. Uh, to, to not be facetious here, there is no way. You, you've, you've got to talk to somebody, talk to the... the, the they can't all be that irrational. It's, it, it's inconceivable that you'd have a whole corporation where everybody is so far gone that they, they think that an argument is the equivalent of force. So you have to find people who are receptive to reason. Find people, find department heads or uh, lower level managers or whatever. Try to find people who are sympathetic to your ideas. There have to be such people in that company and try to organize them. Form some kind of a committee because the corporations always will respond to a committee. <laughs> Form a committee, you know, the committee for the, for, for the free mind or the committee for rational persuasion and, and write um, a, a, you know, a reasoned letter ex explaining succinctly your views and circulate it, you you're definitely will get some support. I guarantee you how much I don't know, but you definitely can do something to try to break into this uh, censorship roadblock. Yes. Yeah, yeah, there are some department heads that have that and some that don't, unfortunately. So I, I know... Well, it's seek them out. There have to be... It doesn't have to be department head, you know, lower level. Even just clerk, find people who are in agreement with you and you, then you form a contingent so that the, the powers that be realize it's not just some local isolated crackpot like you who is... <laughs> 
um, maintaining these views, and they may be more receptive to it. I, I, I like that. I suppose it, it makes everybody feel more comfortable about speaking openly, too, with that cultural pressure coming down on everybody. So, thank you. Okay. Hello, I'm old enough to remember the time when the United States was the single biggest source of income from smuggled books printed by Olympia Press in France. There were more books prohibited in America than in any other country they dealt with. Um, so, free speech was a moment in history, and a very brief one. Um, and we cannot claim a history of free speech. It is a new idea, and I think Ayn Rand contributed enormously to the idea that followed the publication of her books, The Freedom of the Mind. No, I don't agree with you. I, I, the, oh, the censorship you're talking about that Olympia Press smuggled uh, to other countries was almost entirely books that had been banned on grounds of obscenity. Uh, there, was not a, there was not a major censorship effort uh, on books based on their intellectual or ideological content. Uh, I mean, even... Recently, when was the, the Supreme Court decided that flag burning was a protected activity? I know it was a divided court. I don't remember how long ago that was. That was continuing the um, trend at that time of defending free expression. In fact, it went too far because there were many activities that were lumped into free expression and granted the protection of the First Amendment, like um, protesting or pass passing out leaflets on private property on, in, in malls was deemed to be uh, a, 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 an expression of the First Amendment right rather than the violation of the property right of the owners. So the, the um, principle of protecting the expression of ideas that you, you cannot censor something simply because you're saying it's, it's ideologically or philosophically wrong, that is a, uh, that, that's a recent development that's taking hold. That is not what had happened in this country for the past 50 years. The issue of indirect force, I'm not sure whether there is any relationship of indirect force to freedom of speech, but given you spend uh, uh, you know, a good amount of time on explaining how extremely important it is to understand what force is, may I ask, uh, you know, there, there, there is a definition, right? There must be a definition of what physical force is, given there are two aspects, right? You know, force, there has to be physical and there has to be some choice involved that is negated by, 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 by force, by, by physical force. What is, you know, it, it, thinking about indirect force, how, how is indirect force covered in, let's say, defining uh, what 
physical force is or what force is in this context? How do we cover these, these okay. uh, cases of indirect force? Okay, indirect force is essentially fraud. Yeah. In effect, taking someone else's property on by misrepresentation. You tell somebody, I'm selling you this car, you give me money for it, it turns out the car doesn't run or whatever. Uh, you misrepresented the item, so you, you've taken his money by force. So it's indirect force, but it, it's force because it's the same as if you picked his wallet out of his pocket and took his money directly. The definition of force that would cover it is, is not a problem. Force is a physical action against someone, taken by one person against another, against, without that person's consent. So that includes pickpocketing him and stealing his wallet directly. It includes indirect force where you're taking his money without his consent because he consented only to giving, you, to giving you the money only if the car was running. The car isn't running, so he did not get what, you, what he was supposed to get. He did not, um, you did not fulfill the terms under which you took his money, therefore you're taking it without his consent. There's no problem in covering all kinds of indirect force with the same definition. You just have to think about it a little bit. Peter, we have a question online. Yeah. Christian asks, what do you think about the trend of answering many statements with accusations of phobia? <laughs> so Christian gives the example of transphobia, I might add Islamophobia. What do I think about the people who, who use that accusation as a means of silencing? Uh, it, it, it's, I think many things. <laughs> um, Now, actually, the, the talk this morning by um, Ankar Gatte was a good statement of this type of approach. It's a, an approach which distorts cognition for some ulterior motive. So, the concept of transphobia or Islamophobia is an anti-concept, it's a package deal, it's not a valid concept, and it's used instead of answering the legitimate objection or the legitimate argument someone raises, let's take transphobia. Uh, I'm of the view that people, obviously adults, that is not, not minors, adults should have the complete right to take whatever surgical or medical steps they want to, to try to change their gender. They're free to do so. But someone who is a biological male who declares himself to be a woman should not be allowed to participate in athletic events against biological women for obvious reasons. Or such a person should not use the same bathrooms as or locker rooms as biological women. That's obvious. But they don't want to address the points. They don't want to address the arguments about why that's perfectly rational. Instead, they just want dis try to dismiss the whole uh, issue by smearing people with, well, you're transphobic. You have an irrational fear of transgender people. Or you have an irrational fear of, 
of Muslims or rational fear of, of gay people. Get them to address the legitimate points being raised rather than using a package deal as a smear, as a means of avoiding the actual intellectual issues involved because they can't answer the, the rational arguments. They need to use some kind of subterfuge in order to avoid having to address the issue. Hi. Um, so going back to Salman Rushdie and that whole thing, whenever in my lifetime I've heard stories like that and about, say, bookstores, you know, bookstores blown up, but then other bookstores remove those books, I've always thought that if I owned a bookstore during that, I would keep those books on the shelf, you know, that I wouldn't be yeah. intimidated like that. And then once I calm down, I start thinking, I've been a business owner, I think, well, wow, I, you know, I value my life, I value my property, my yes. business, and I, so what would I actually do? And then I f sort of feel like a coward. What do you think about that? That's a, a good question, and there's a good, good answer to it, which I happen to have. <laughs> You're perfectly uh, being reasonable to be afraid for your safety. But do you know why you're, you're afraid? It's because our government has been derelict in its responsibility to protect you. That's the government's job. If we had a proper society, a proper um, government, uh, first of all, Iran wouldn't have even had the nerve to do it, but if it did threaten us that way, we would have responded. And while the threat was still in existence, they would have policemen at every single bookstore that had the book to protect you, because that's the government's job. Um, you know, it's like uh, people who are uh, afraid in, in, in uh, criminal cases. They're afraid to testify against these mafia or these real, really hardcore, vicious criminals. They're afraid to testify because they think that they will be the targets of attacks by these criminals. And they're right to fear because our criminal justice system does not protect them. It doesn't keep these vicious criminals isolated, in, in jail, without bail, without access to anybody, including their lawyers, when they're obviously threats to anybody. So if we had a proper uh, government, a proper uh, legal system, then you wouldn't need to be afraid if you had the bookstore. Now you're perfectly entitled. You are not a coward, absolutely not. It's, it's, it's perfectly rational to feel afraid of that. And, and I, I, you're, you're in an untenable situation. You have no good solution. Just like, you know, the guy building the bomb with a, the terrorist puts a gun to his head. That's what's happening to you. The, the, the terrorists are putting a gun to your head and you know, you don't know whether to comply or not, but it is not your shortcoming. It's the shortcoming of our government. Hello, I have a question for you. Um, I'm a certified public accountant working for a large accounting firm, and I would like to hear your comment on two facts. Number one is the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants issued a report in 2019 stating that only 2% of all U.S. certified public accountants are people of African descent. Moreover, only 1% of the partners in the accounting firms are black. 
So right now, the trend in the accounting profession is to institute committees, groups that are trying to close the gap um, and bring diversity, they call it diversity, they call it equity. Would you care to comment first on the gap itself and number two on the effort to close it? Yes. Um, I'm going to start with the second and I'll get to the first. Uh, the idea that to um, redress a supposed injustice, let's even grant that there's some injustice, to the, the, the idea that to redress an injustice requires imposing an injustice, a further injustice upon other people is wrong. The idea that the way to combat racism, if racism is the explanation, and I'll get to that in a minute, even if it is the explanation, the idea that to combat racism, you need to, in effect, uh, impose racist discriminations against whites is completely unjust. Uh, it, it's, it's not a valid way to do it. Now, why is there uh, a, a gap? Um, I don't know specifically about the accounting profession, but I'll, I'll tell you generally that uh, there is, in fact, uh, in, 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 in certain areas, in a number of areas, for example, in um, a school performance, uh, whites uh, generally do better than black, white kids do generally better than black kids. Uh, prisons are disproportionately populated by blacks as against whites. Why is that? That is entirely an intellectual issue. The, 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 the blacks have been told by their intellectual leaders, most of whom are white, by the way, that uh, they are an oppressed minority today. Anything that happens to them is not their responsibility. If they are not able to get a job, it's society's fault. They don't have to um, try to um, obtain training to develop skills to get a job. Um, if they're out of work, they don't have to exert the effort to try to find a job somewhere else. It's society's responsibility to take care of them. Society is racist. And it, all of that leads to the uh, idea that it's perfectly okay for certain groups to remain passive and remain not responsible for their own lives. So they don't, uh, those who accept this, this philosophy, they don't exert the effort. They don't do what they could do. And therefore, uh, if they resort to crime, it's excused, well, uh, you're poor, it's understandable, you're, you become a criminal, nobody should blame you. What is the, the inevitable result of this kind of teaching that, that has been dr drummed into their brains for, for decades and decades? Obviously, you're going to get more people resorting to crime. You're going to get more people being unemployed or, or not able to find a job in the first place. You're going to find more students not being willing to devote the effort to studying that their um, white counterparts do. So, and again, I don't know specifically about the field of accounting. But, uh, so I don't know the reason why there is this disparity there. But regardless, the, the two things that have to be changed are one is 
we have to change the idea that people are not responsible for their individual lives. Racism today does not explain why people are miserable or poor. I mean, there are obviously isolated cases of racism. There are many racists, unfortunately, in this country. And racism is being encouraged by the very people who claim to be opposed to it because there's nothing more systemically racist in our society than affirmative action programs. So it encourages racism on the, on the other side as well as, as, a, as a response. But this country, and I, I, I gave a, a talk last year, I guess, uh, about uh, whether this country has a systemic racist, racism problem. It does not. Again, the, the, the primary manifestation of racism today is mainly on the left with affirmative action and so forth. And there, I don't deny, and it's true that there are going to be many racists in this country. They are not the ones controlling the institutions in this country. If you encounter a racist employer, you go to another one, another employer who will hire you. The, 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 we do not live yet in a completely irrational racist society. And the second point was, again, you do not um, redress a grievance. You do not solve a, an, an unjust problem of racism against blacks by saying the answer is to racially discriminate against whites. The answer only is we need a completely colorblind society. Race should not be an important factor, should not be a factor in virtually every decision, certainly not in, in academia or in hiring, in, 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 in employment. It should not be a factor, and, and the left is, is adamantly opposed to the principle of colorblindness, and they want to entrench racism forever. So uh, that, that would be my answer to your question. Thank you. Thank you. Too long of an answer. <laughs> my family uh, fled Iran after the revolution because they faced torture and death for having the wrong ideas. But that seems quaint. The case of Salman Rushdie seems almost innocent compared to maybe the last 10 years in this country where it almost feels like a modern day inquisition. They don't seem to want your silence. They want you to see the color red and declare it's blue wholeheartedly as if they've changed reality. Is, that, is there an element of that? Could you comment on sort of the difference between this modern censorship and what we normally think of as just suppressing ideas we don't like? Well, there's, there's definitely a mentality, uh, a totalitarian mentality that is gradually taking place. I mean, it's far from being entrenched, but it, 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 it manifests itself in... The, the, the notion that certain things are just, certain expressions of ideas are out of bounds. They're intolerable. And anyone who expresses it has to be sent to a re-education camp, which is the totalitarian approach to these kinds of things. It's the, it's the idea that 
the way to handle people who disagree with you is not by trying to argue with them, not by offering them reasons why they're wrong and you're right, which used to be what was done, but there's no point in arguing. You know, in a totalitarian country, uh, in, 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 let's say, a communist country, in North Korea, somebody gets up and says, I don't believe in socialism. I think our, 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 leader, our leader is corrupt. Communism is wrong. They're not going to invite him over for tea and say, look, here's why you're wrong. You know, read these arguments and you'll, you'll be convinced. There's no rational basis for their view and they're not going to have a rational basis for trying to dissuade someone who holds the other view. They just send him off to a gulag and that's it. And that's the mentality. That's what I mean by the totalitarian mentality that's slowly infecting our society here. So yes, that, that's a terrible problem. It's part of this whole trend that I've been describing in my talk. It's the idea that not that we can give you arguments for certain ideas, but it's a product of, of, of your environment, of your, of your class, of your culture. And we can't tolerate any dissent. We can't tolerate any uh, disagreements which are attempts there to, to uh, you know, deny our, our identity. And the whole sphere of argument, of persuasion, of discussion is being um, wiped out. Uh, and that's, that's a... That's a, that's a sad commentary. I think it, what I've described in my talk today is a portent of what may come. It doesn't have to come. We can still fight it. We're still free. We still have freedom of speech. I wish everybody would remember that. We still have in this country essentially freedom of speech as evidenced by a million facts, including the fact that we hold an, an Ocon here which you could not do in a totalitarian system. You, you couldn't do anything close to this. So it's precious. Guard it. Do whatever you can to preserve it and defend it and explain to people why it's so important and how it's under attack. That's all I can say. Thank you. That's it? Okay. I just wanted to ask you that um, the 1964, the Civil Rights Act and the protected classes, in my estimation, has done a lot of damage to this country and we are having more additions of more protected classes coming in. And when we talk about the, you know, the tribal mentalities and the groups being created, I just wanted to ask you as to when this law was passed, was there challenges from any intellectuals? And since that period of time, has there been anything that has challenged a question? Anything that what? Has questioned the, you know, the, uh, the reasoning behind that, the, the laws? That law. Well, there's certainly now 
reaction to the worst elements of that law and all the things that followed. We just had a Supreme Court decision two days ago about affirmative action, which was basically a good decision because people have come to realize that using racism to fight racism is unjust. So there are voices uh, on that axis arguing for it. There, I, I, um, I don't think that they're nearly as convincing as they should be. Uh, I, I don't think they have the right basis. The basis is individualism and individual rights. I don't think they have that really solidly. But they have part of it, and they at least see the, the, the evil of the kinds of entrenched racist programs that affirmative action has established. So there is that. Um, specifically in 1964, I don't know what voices there were then, um, but now, and, and certainly, you know, Ayn Rand has written uh, a, a fundamental article about the, the nature and the evils of racism, which should be distributed and widespread, certainly in, in, in the context of, of that Supreme Court decision. So there are intellectual voices opposed to it, and our job is to join those voices and um, convey the roots of the, the proper view, the, convey the, the, the philosophical roots, the idea of the free mind and volition and individualism and individual rights. And, 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 there, and then it's obvious that racism will not gain uh, any foothold. So we have our job cut out for us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.